Hello podcasty people. Uh, this is just a little heads up to say we've had some technical issues lately with our recordings which we're working on. Um, so last week unfortunately the recording got lost which is a real shame because Rod uh, spent some time sketching out um, who Jesus was. If you are really keen on hunting it down um, you could look at buying a book called Unapologetic by Francis Spufford because uh, Rod read a fair bit from a chapter on Jesus and that. Um, it's fantastic. And this week um, there were some gates, which is a technical soundy thing um, on the microphone, which means that um, the recording kind of dips in and out a little bit, particularly unfortunately with our um, feedback and discussion from people in our community who don't always speak quite as loudly into the microphone. So it'll fade out a little bit during some of them, but um, hang on tight because it comes back again. So sorry about that. And I'm sure sad that you have to miss out on the wisdom of our community because um, it certainly seems a lot wiser than mine sometimes. Um, I hope the week is treating you kindly. Um, go in peace. So we're talking about prayer. Um, and for those of you who are new around here, you'll know that, um, oh, you won't know yet, that um, our series go for a long time. Uh, so there may be a bit of catch-up for you. So we try and give like a little brief synopsis um, at the start of each talk so we can kind of cover where we've been. But as the series goes on, it gets harder and harder and harder. So my very brief synopsis is a lot of our community find prayer really, really difficult for some very good reasons. So we've spent the last, uh, we spent the first start of the, start of the series um, summarizing, oh, sorry, listening to people's stories about um how they experience prayer and the whole gamut, right, from loving it and enjoying it and finding it easy um, and to I no longer pray because of these reasons. Uh, and then we spent a few weeks looking at some of the major themes that came through there. And now um, we're approaching prayer through the lens of Jesus. So Rod read a beautiful, beautiful um description of the Jesus story written by a guy called Francis Spufford. Spufford is a name that I wish I had. Um, it didn't get recorded, unfortunately, but um, we have a copy of the book on the way, so if you want to try to catch up by reading, controversial, um, you can do that. A couple of weeks ago, I proposed that um, the best place to start in looking at prayer, in fact, the best place we have as followers of Jesus, as Christians, um, our tradition says, and by no means am I saying it's the only tradition, um, but our tradition says that Jesus is the lens through which we see God. Um, in John 14, Jesus says, um, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So we... Discussed earlier in the series, caricatures of God. Um, one of our major issues with prayer is um, really comes down to how our picture of God and how we think God um, acts in the world. And so um, you'll have to podcast back a couple to get there. But um, we discuss some different caricatures of God, some different ways um, that we either implicitly or explicitly see um, God when we picture God in our head. Um, our proposal was that we. St- start with um, with Jesus as our picture of God. And so today, we're going to look at prayer through the lens of Jesus, and we're going to start with the Lord's Prayer. Um, 
I'm going to start. Let us pray and start to pray. Feel free to join me if you are so inclined. Feel free to take a pair of shoes if you are not. Loving God, protect me from shoes. Loving God, I, like most of us, have uh, bits and pieces, paper mache version of you in my head, all these little collections, um, all these snippets and ideas, some of them contradictory when I think about you. Um, I guess it's the only way we can hold you um, as humans. But today, I pray that the bits that don't reflect you would fall off, that we would slowly begin to know you as you actually are. Give us the courage to let go of versions of you um, that are not beautiful and good and true. Um, and give us the courage to take hold of um, what you might be trying to reveal to us today. In your loving name, amen. Uh, so we're going to look at the first bit of the Lord's Prayer, which I have bolded. Um, the bold's not that strong, so it's the first four lines, so we're going to bring you some home. Uh, the, the disciples in Matthew asked Jesus um, to teach them a little prayer, because John the Baptist did, and um, his disciples have a prayer, so we would like a prayer too. Um, they didn't want to be left out. Keeping up with the Johnses, that's cool. Just take a sip of coffee to let that sink in. Um, so Jesus had a little ramble first, according to Matthew. Um, he started by saying, don't pray to look spiritual, because that's stupid. Um, so if you're writing notes, write that down. Um, he also said, don't babble incantations like the pagans and Gentiles do. And we'll get to what's behind that later. But basically he's saying don't recite prayer formulaically expecting it to leverage God, um, which is how the pagans prayed. And we'll get to why that's important soon. It's interesting that he then gave them a prayer to pray, which can easily be used in that manner. Um, he then said, do know that God knows what you need even before you ask. So that's important. And then he said, try this. Well, that's me paraphrasing, but he might have. Abba God in heaven, hallowed be your name. Or another translation, may your name be made holy. Your kingdom come. Your will be done. On earth, as it is in heaven. So we're going to stop there today. There's much more than that. Way more than we can um, chew. But I want you to have a quick look at those first four lines. And those of you who've been around long enough to um, have um, seen the caricatures that we put up, some different versions of God that we um, that we looked at. If you're looking just at this first half of this prayer, what might it say about God? 
what caricatures might it rule out? Um, what images of God spring up from this text? What does it make you think about prayer? What's challenging about it? I'll give you a moment to think about that. And then some people amongst our community are brave, talky people who think with their mouths instead of quietly. Um, and they might want to chip in with some thoughts there. Anyone want to share what they what jumps out at them from this these four lines? It's like a little snowball. Like once the first person goes, then everyone gets on board. Ladies and gentlemen, understood. Interestingly, it doesn't, it almost like still reminds me of the Zeus character, just all about God's will and God being hallowed and powerful and his will being done. Trying to put characters in my head to try and sort of go, oh, how does it challenge each of them? And I really can't see how it does challenge the Zeus one. Anyone else? Um, I think it does challenge the Zeus one in terms of okay, so your kingdom come, your will be to me of a not yet God, um, and um, recogni- recognizing that things are not as they are, you know, as they should be according to God's will. So I, it's, yeah, I, I don't want to say um, powerless, but yeah, very much um, an absence of things yet to come, uh, which I don't know, when I think of Zeus, it sounds like it all is and it's all happening and it's all in his control and he controls everything um, and everything is as according to God's will right now as it is for us now. Mm. Snowball's got momentum. Thank you, Lord. Um, the verse I said for Abba is Very subversive looking text. Um, Abba is Aramaic for daddy, for papa. It's an incredibly intimate and affectionate word, um, which, particularly in Greco-Roman context, you would never you would never associate intimacy with the gods. I think it's some. Uh, it boils down to an invitation for God to come to earth and to be in. There's a real, yeah, there's a real vulnerability to change. 
think you're saying it's interesting. It's sort of this um, space between heaven and earth and, and whether there's a distance there or whether both of the things are in the same place is kind of interesting and, and probably where your view is on, on that probably affects how you pray these prodigies. On some ways, you can sort of think about when you're a kid, sort of heaven, you know, way out there and nowhere near here. And in other ways, you might think of heaven as already being here or the kingdom already being here. So depends where your view is on that, and that probably shifts quite a bit too. Um, perhaps that help with some context there. The first century Palestinian <laughs> um, Jewish view of heaven, um, we think very geographically when we hear heaven because we've been, we've been suckered by platonic dualism. Um, Again, that's probably too big a sentence to unpack. But um, we we think there's a we automatically think there's a huge split between the, the evil material world and the perfect divine world. Um, for Jews in that time, um, heaven was far more about a state than a place. Um, it's not that heaven is in a particular place somewhere far far away. Um, heaven is where God is present and. The, probably the best explanation I've heard around it is that there's not a separation between heaven and earth in Jewish thinking there. There's a dislocation. I um, unfortunately dislocate my shoulder fairly regularly. Um, I haven't in a few years, which is great because it really makes me vomit and black out when it happens. Um, but my arm doesn't fall off. <laughs> um, but it's a very, very painful process of things not aligning. Um, and that's how the people of this time saw the dislocation between what God's intention was and what was actually happening, this painful dislocation um, of things being connected but not actually working correctly. Um, when my shoulder is dislocated, I can't do much. Um, I certainly couldn't operate machinery. Um, yeah, so, so thinking of heaven as a state rather than a geographical place can help there. Any more observations? We haven't really talked yet about hallowed be your name. It's a very um, interesting way. It's the second line in the prayer. It's obviously very important. The holiness is the name of God. Um, but growing up in a culture where God is a descriptor and a swear word and an exclamation. Um, I was like, I don't know, I don't know if I actually understand the concept of the holiness of God. And I use the word God myself like that. Oh my God, I just got peanut butter toast for breakfast. Yay, you know. Yeah, I love peanut butter toast. Yeah. For me, the second line, more than anything, um, is a line that we can carry unconscious assumptions to. So, hello be your name. Um, may your name be famous. May um, people have an understanding and reverence for who you actually are. Is the easiest line to bring Zeus to. Because it sounds very, very monarchal king, overlord, my will above everything else. Um, 
But for me, it's subverted by the lines around it. Abba God. This intimacy. I mean, it's so intimate we're uncomfortable with it. A few weeks back, Russell got us to write prayers to different names um, that we use when we talk to God. And uh, some people leave their bits of paper behind, which I then go and read. Um, <laughs> so one of them was like, you know, praying to Jesus, dear Jesus, blah, 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 bit of a prayer, um, dear um, Almighty, um, I don't think I like you, uh, dear, and there was like, dear Abba slash Papa, this is kind of creepy. <laughs> That's the kind of intimacy I think Jesus is, that kind of intimacy is so intimate it makes us uncomfortable. Um, We'll get to why this matters a little bit further down the track. But for me, Jesus' intimacy frames the rest of this prayer. And we have to be very, very careful not to read it separate from that. To truly understand this prayer, we have to slowly shape ourselves around his view of Abba. And for those of us who have carried... Um, disappearing dad, absentee landlord, um, almighty Zeus. Pictures of God to prayer? That can take some work. The second thing that subverts the Zeus character in particular here, as Jenny pointed out, is that God's will is clearly not fully outworked. That God's will is not done by divine decree. This really matters because for those of us who feel heart-wrenchingly disappointed that God did not prevent tragedy or loss in our lives, we've got the opportunity to open ourselves to the possibility that God grieves this at least as much as we do. And I think lots of us conceptually know this, but too often when tragedy strikes, we revert to a Zeus picture of God. And I'd say that often we pray to the God that we think we need. We pray to the God that we think we need. Sometimes all the freedom in the world and an open and uncontrolling God seems worth sacrificing in exchange for the possibility of averting this death, this tragedy, of extending the life of a loved one or forcing a relationship to flourish instead of wither. At times like this, we don't want a God whose will is not done on earth. We want a God who just comes in, punches some stuff, and forces himself upon us. And I guess where we're left in the series is that, again, we don't get to pick the God we want. We have to try and pick the God that is faithful as as Christians, we have to pick the God that is faithful to Jesus. And I understand that not everyone here is a Christian, so you've got lots more options <laughs> for those of you. You're lucky in that sense because, you know, there's heaps, <laughs> there's heaps more options. But for those of us who somehow mysteriously have fallen in love with Jesus, we don't always get the God that we want. 
And when we are desperate, that's when we want. That's when we demand that God be Zeus. But again, the God that Jesus reveals isn't Zeus. Doesn't have control in that way. That God in this prayer, the Father's will is frustrated. And there's grief about this. Um, Greg Boyd, who's an American theologian, pastor guy, worth reading. Um, he says, when God flexes his muscles, it looks like Jesus on the cross. That is the power of God. When God flexes his muscles, it looks like Jesus on the cross. And again, when we're feeling out of control, that's not necessarily the God that we want. But this prayer is also laced with hope. Because it's prayed by a Jesus who saw pain and suffering every day. His own people lived under a vicious, brutal, violent empire. He saw his members of his own people extorting the tax system to put subsistence farmers out of their land. He saw so much illness that medical technology of the day could not deal with. He saw the illness made worse by the fact that those who were ill were seen to be unfavored by God and were excluded socially. So not only are they sick and leprous or blind, but for so many of them, they were socially excluded because of that as well. Jesus intimately knew the pain of the world. And so if we can take anything from that, it's that God deeply, deeply cares. And that God would rather God's will be done. But for whatever reason, and we will get to that later in the series rather than today, to try and contain this somewhat. For whatever reasons, God's will is not done. Always, all the time, by his divine Zeus-like decree. Because God is not Zeus. But there's also hope in this prayer. That Jesus prayed, may your will be done, may your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. Because Jesus obviously thought that something happened in that process. That it was worth praying, that it wasn't a waste of time. So rather than feeling feeble and helpless, if we follow Jesus here, we have to weave some hope into our prayer that we may not know exactly how it works, but that there's some sense of participation in this, that our prayers actually do have an effect and that they are received by the ears of other who deeply, deeply cares. We pray that God's will might happen because it is currently not happening. We don't simply accept the world as it is. Unlike the Greco-Roman view, unlike the, the Zeus view, in the eyes of Jesus, the poor are worth fighting for because they weren't put there by God. But they are cared about by God. There's this futility within the Greco-Roman system, which is the kind of the other 
major challenging religious system of the day where if you saw someone who was poor, they were fated to be there by the gods. And so to give them money was to risk making the gods angry because you were trying to change their station. That was the common view. So you could give them money if you thought that it would benefit you somehow. You could give them money if they went around telling everyone how wonderful you were and you got honor out of it. But to just give someone money because you cared about them, that's preposterous and evil because you're subverting the gods. And here Jesus is going, no, that person is there because God's will is not done. But we, but we can take part in changing that. For Jesus, our disappointment, our hurt, our rage at the injustice of the world and the injustice of our own stories, the rage at the loss of the person we loved, how deep trauma that the relationship that we hoped would work out didn't, all of those things are not wasted. That we should be angry, that we should be disappointed, that we should be hurt, that we should bring that to other. That resistance to death is not futile. Our response begins with the plea that goodness, fullness, embrace be made the norm rather than exclusion, exploitation, and death. This is where I think we'll leave things today. But my last thought out of this bit is that for Jesus, prayer is an act of communion and participation not of magic. When Jesus says, your will be done, the your is the your of someone immersed in a loving, trusting relationship. Prayer is inviting God into something and joining with God. In fact, Paul says that it's the spirit that prays through us, that God prays through us to God. There's this very mystical <laughs> and mind-boggling sense of interconnectivity and participation that we're invited into. That we're invited into requesting and hoping and being a part of seeing God's will come about. I'm going to read you this little story again from Greg Boyd. Um, he was praying for a friend to be healed with a bunch of people, and they, um, the person wasn't getting healed, and so they repented of their sins and fasted and prayed and did a whole bunch of different things in the belief that if they got everything right, then this friend would be healed. Um, and as far as I know, this friend wasn't healed, and it was really problematic for them. This is his description of it. One of the many differences between magic and biblical faith is that magic is all about an engaging behaviors that ultimately benefit the practitioner. While biblical faith is all about cultivating a covenantal relationship with God that is built on mutual trust. And while the God-human relationship, like all trusting human-to-human relationships, benefits both God and the person of faith, It is not entered into as a means to some other end. 
we might say that magical faith is utilitarian, while biblical faith is simply faithful. Um, for utilitarian, you could probably replace mechanistic. If I do this thing, then this thing will happen. In this light, it seems apparent that we were engaging in a Christianized form of magic when we were praying for Brian. The assumption was that if we engaged in a certain behavior, namely making ourselves sufficiently certain our friend would be healed, then we could influence the spiritual realm, in this case God, to act in a way that would benefit our friend and therefore us. While this might on the surface appear to be very similar to how a person with a biblical understanding of faith might pray, the assumption about what is going on, I submit, is much closer to magic. Um, magic throughout the Bible is constantly resisted. Um, which seems strange when you go by the assumption that magic can be used for good, right? That if there was a thing that might work, that why wouldn't you try it? But magic throughout all of Scripture is constantly resisted. And my understanding is because it comes down to this. That at the center of the world, the center of the universe and the way it's been shaped, it is relational. That magic is primarily about being able to control. About doing things in a particular way that will guarantee a result. About manipulating things in particular ways that will see our will come to pass. Yet what Jesus seems to be pointing out here at here is that the world can't be controlled in that manner no matter how much we hope it might. That we can pray and sometimes because of that prayer, because of that participation stuff, great stuff comes out of it and it is possible for miracles to happen. But that the idea that anything has a guarantee attached to it misunderstand, profoundly misunderstands the shape of the universe and how God acts in the world. That God will not be traded for Zeus to try and trade God for Zeus is to misunderstand Abba. And it's a path that will ultimately only lead to disappointment and hurt and further trauma. And that's, as I said at the start, that's really challenging because when we are desperate, what we want more than anything else is Zeus, even if in the big picture. Taking a step back, that's not actually what we think is going to happen. So I think what I'd like us to ponder over this week is the idea of prayer being an act of intimacy and communion and participation rather than of control. Which again, control is a big thing to give up. I think <laughs> potentially really traumatic too. Does anyone have closing thoughts or prayers? Um, I have a friend recently who I was speaking to a person who was very um, but <laughs> no, no, not that person. Um, uh, and and also, I guess tied in with with musicians is also um, circus who have worked. Uh, 
being part of statistics of it and all of these acts have one thing in common which is you're actually doing something very very difficult but you're pretending it's effort, effortless on the outside um, and I think maybe one of the reasons why we like magic so much is because oh, it looks fun and easy on the surface but there's a lot of intricate choreography that goes behind that to make it look that way it's actually much more difficult um, behind the scenes um, and I yeah, and I think that the reason why with prayer we gravitate to magic is because it is the effortless quick fix we can go to rather than if you're calling me to intimacy and relationship, I feel like that's a lot more effort than I'd rather just utter a magic prayer and, and, and get it done um, get it done with. I don't want to wrestle with things that are messy and difficult and people. Um, yeah, so that's um, quite... I think there's a lot of parallels between um, how we live today and, and how everything's so instantaneous and easy for us. It's always interested me that um, for people who can, I can't, but for people who can kind of have that classic um, strong God mentality of, you know, when someone dies, it's because, you know, God needed another angel. Um and the simplicity inherent in that, if you can kind of numb yourself to the trauma of this kind of God picking flowers of humanity because he wants to hang out with them somewhere else rather than here. If you can numb yourself that much, there's an incredible simplicity about that view and it avoids a whole lot of problems. But for me, it's just not faithful to this. It's not faithful to Jesus. And I think... It's so dehumanizing in what you have to bring yourself to as a person. It cuts off, it's sheer will. And we were not made sheer will. We were made deeply emotive. Very fragile creatures. Uh, and also magic is about sleight of hand and deception or the in people on the inside knowing the right words and gestures and people on the outside not understanding. So there's always, the mag magical thinking is always about disconnection and holding something to yourself rather than the idea of prayer being connection and, and relationship. And there aren't, a, there isn't a, a set number of steps that you have to do and there's no sleight of hand involved. Which is really hard to do. Yeah, it's so interesting talking about this leading up to Easter. Like the loss of control, like the loss of that good in Good Good Friday. We don't know Resurrection Sunday is coming. We sit with the loss of God. That the best version of God we know has just been crucified by a brutal empire. Again, throughout this narrative, loss of control is weaved through it. And part of our discipleship as Christians is to learn how to process that loss of control and learn what hope there is on the other side of it. But for me, I would rather that faithful faithfulness to a God who cares 
a God who is emotionally engaged with the world than this all-controlling God who tramples humanity on its head. Mm. Bit too soon. Okay. Um, we're going to take Kim here now. Uh, that's a lot to drop on you. <laughs> I understand. Um, but again, one of the one of the most important things that sits at the center of this church is that community really matters and conversation really matters. Um, that the best theologizing that happens is in the conversations that happen amongst our community. So whatever you take from today, um, don't take my words as Zeus words either. That by sheer force of the power of the microphone, um, you're obliged to swallow this hook, line, and sinker. This is stuff to be wrestled with and talked about, which is why our series takes so long, because we continue to wrestle and talk. And there are a diversity of voices within this community who have different experiences around this stuff. For some of you, this is easy. For some of you, this is hard. For some of you, this is rings with truth, and others, there's something wrong at the center of it. And that's okay. What we do choose to share in common is community and communion, that um, we eat and drink together and we stay together in the presence of God.